Ginger, how are you? I'm great. Good. This is awesome. As a student, how you phrase that can really open discussions with people who know more than you. We got on the freeway and I could see in the rearview mirror pieces of red plastic flying out the back of the ambulance onto the freeway behind me. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. If you sit down with a medic long enough and ask them to reflect on the right questions, they end up revealing truths that mirror the experiences of medics everywhere. And that's what listeners say they enjoy about the podcast. It's the idea that sometimes the guests put into words the ideas that listeners have had, but they've never been able to fully articulate. In this episode, the medic had communicated his ideas prior to me meeting him. In a thoughtful blog post, he discusses 20 lessons learned in his years in EMS. And what I discovered was honest insight into the complexities of the world of EMS. He's the mentor I'd wish for any medic just starting an EMS because he's managed to navigate 20 years in the field and come out on the other side with the most sincere and kindest of hearts. Tim, thank you for writing this piece. And thank you for allowing me the honor to ask you questions about what you wrote. Listen to his reading of a small sample of his lessons learned and his answers to the follow-up questions. Number seven, listen a lot. One of the things I have always loved about being an EMS is sitting around the dinner table at the station, laughing at stories, hearing how things were back in the day. It took me a couple of years to learn that what I was actually hearing wasn't just stories, it was wisdom. Sitting in the fire station as a junior medic, I was surrounded by five people who had a cumulative experience of just under 100 years. That is a ridiculous number of EMS calls, fires fought, practical jokes. I listened not just at the humor of it, which was side-splitting. I began to listen to the lessons. How did you know that patient was going to crash? What told you that line was going to snap and could have killed you all? I cannot even express how much I gained from taking the time to ask these questions. The most overlooked procedure on a call, like where to park, all of a sudden became the linchpin in understanding what kept a crew safe. One of the greatest lessons I learned was that it was absolutely critical to learn to trust my instincts. So often I would hear senior paramedics say that, I'm not sure, I just had this gut instinct. What a valuable lesson. Be thankful that we work in a job where oral tradition is passed down, senior to junior, with awareness of the deeper lessons we can learn from people's mistakes and heroic actions. Number seven, you said listen a lot. Yes. You talk about asking questions especially when you're new, asking questions of people that have experience. And the way you worded the questions that you ask is really cool because you ask questions. It sounds like you ask questions in a way that keeps the person open. You said, how did you know the patient was going to crash? Or what did you see that made you take this action? That's a process that I try to do in these episodes, and I call it cognitive autopsy. By asking experts these questions, novices can learn what's called tacit knowledge. And so we have explicit knowledge, things that are in textbooks, things that are easy to educate on. And then there's this other type of knowledge that is called tacit knowledge. And it's things that experts know, and they don't exactly even know that they know it or how to articulate it to others. Experts pick up on subtle patterns in their environment just from repetition and experience. 
what you called in your blog post gut instinct. If you ask really good questions, you can help people reflect and get awareness about how they make decisions if you can keep them open. And so saying things like, how did you decide? Instead of saying, uh, the wrong thing to say would be to say, why did you do that? Because some people associate that word with being questioned or, or that you have doubt as opposed to your actual curiosity. Right. That's something that students can do on their write outs is just ask those types of questions. And it's really important to ask them in the right way. Absolutely. There is always the risk people will feel like you're Monday morning quarterbacking. We take a lot of pride in our clinical care. And so to feel like we are being judged in something that we did can be very challenging. And I think it takes a lot of experience and it takes a lot of self-confidence to not feel when somebody asks that question that they are being accusatory in that process. As a student, how you phrase that can really open discussions with people who know more than you. Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. As I was walking out of the ED one night, I told my intern that practice makes perfect. I was quickly rebuked in a wonderfully respectful way by a physician that I knew well. He ran after us and pulled us aside and said, Tim, I heard what you said, but remember, practice makes habit. Perfect practice makes perfect. Deliberate and consistent action rooted in deliberate and consistent practice allow for perfection. You wrote that practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice Mm. makes perfect. And that's a quote that's credited to Vince Lombardi. So Vince Lombardi, most listeners will know, is the American football coach who's considered by many as he's the greatest football coach of all time. Once paramedics are released to independent duty, they lose their training officer. They lose their coach. And so without Mm -hmm. a coach, um, how do you decide what to practice? Hmm. That's a great question. I practice in two ways. One of them is retrospective. If I have a call that I don't understand, I will go back and find literature either online or my go-to was a critical care nursing textbook. If I had a pediatric call, I would go to Harriet Lane. Like a lot of things I would ask the physicians or nurse practitioners or PAs that I work with in the hospital, what's the best resource for this? I clearly remember a call, my first tricyclic overdose patient that I took care of. I didn't understand why it caused the widening QRS complex. And so I found a cardiologist friend of mine and we sat and he explained that to me. So there's a retrospective aspect to it. I run a call. I don't understand something. I find out about it. The other way is through mostly social media or different uh, websites that I go to that trigger my curiosity. And so that's the prospective studying. I will look for those things that They capture my curiosity, really. And then I'll dig deep into those, too, online, the nursing textbooks, and just asking a lot of questions of people who know more than I do. Number nine, you said, understand the concept of command presence. And I had a friend of mine read through your blog. They really liked that you described command presence as kind of subtle and not exactly what you think it is. Mm-hmm. It's a little different than the obvious. It's not being large and in charge, necessarily. Thinking about yourself, what do people see on your calls that communicate to them that you're in charge? Well, that's a great question. I think the very first thing is somebody who's dressed appropriately. I think some people 
think that you can walk around with your boots unzipped, your shirt not tucked in in the middle of the night and that kind of thing. You're a soup sandwich at that point, you know, which is just a big mess. If you walk in looking like that soup sandwich, it's an immediate value judgment that this person doesn't take care of themselves. I think the next thing is being polite. When somebody is polite, it communicates a calm and a peacefulness because you're not rushed. You're not super jumpy. You're not really edgy. You're not coming after somebody aggressively. Tone of voice communicates a tremendous amount in command presence. It can be really quiet and communicate tremendous strength. Sometimes, though, it also needs to be that loud, all right, everybody stop, kind of, you know, really aggressive. I would take students out to the park and have them yell and, and develop the loud voice because it's hard for people to be that assertive when they need to. Understanding that all of these are like cards in a deck and you play the right card at the right time. So sometimes command presence on a call in the middle of the night for, I'm thinking specifically of a lady whose husband was having a a massive stroke, almost to the point where we knew he was herniating and not going to survive. She was focused on getting her, his slippers on his feet. She was becoming so agitated that she was impeding the care that we were trying to provide. For her, command presence meant just speaking very slowly and calmly and telling her, this is what's happening. My name is Tim. I'm the paramedic in charge here. I'm going to take your husband to the hospital. I'm going to treat him like he was my own dad. And then when you get to the hospital, look for me. I'll help you out there. It wasn't loud or aggressive. I was speaking very slowly and very quietly, but she looked at me and kind of said, okay, she acquiesced. Her stress became less because she knew that somebody was in charge. And it's a confidence thing too. It's learning to stand, to stand up straight when you need to, but it's also, I'm a big guy. I'm six feet, 240, you know? And so in a big dark uniform, that can be really intimidating. So sometimes command presence for me was kneeling down and getting on somebody's level and saying, I'm not the authority figure that you think I am. I'm going to get down on your level. And now we can have a conversation as two humans together. But in that subtle wording of, declarative statements as opposed to asking, will you now get on the gurney? Okay, now I need you to get on the gurney. Can communicate that same level of command without being a total jerk about it. I don't know whether you're familiar with verbal judo. I just recommended that book to a student and I have it over here on my shelf. When that concept first came out, one of the sergeants from a local law enforcement agency was one of the original trainers. And he came to our paramedic school and taught us that concept. It's much more about the subtlety of how to manipulate a situation to go the way you want it to and have the other person think that it's their idea to begin with. If you can accomplish that, if you can be that much of a, of a Yoda in the middle of that, or, or I guess it would be Obi-Wan where he was, you know, that these are not the droids you're looking for. Oh, these are not the droids we're looking for and walk away. Like if you can accomplish that on scene of an EMS call, you've reached a high level in your career because that takes a lot of subtle manipulation and strength and confidence. That's the goal to me is to not get in fights with people, not get in shouting matches, you know, 
there are there are times when you have to be that authority person and then you have other people who have the the tools to help you accomplish that step and typically our law enforcement partners um but sometimes if they're not there you have to be that person in order to protect yourself but the majority of the time gosh if you can manipulate the situation to not escalate into a confrontation you've done your job better than most people even realize and you talked about the slow calm speech declarative statements and just to try to put words to this intangible I also recommend to stand still. Right. If you can keep your body still, it really, that communicates. You've got control of yourself. And if you have control of yourself, you can have control of the scene. And, and that spreads not only to the patient, but to everybody around you. Number two, look out for your partner. As much as society tries to tell us that we are not our brothers or sisters keepers, in this job, I think we have to be. This doesn't mean imposing our worldviews or moral values on people, but it does mean looking out for people. It means saying, you're important, your life matters, and therefore your safety and health matter to me. I've been in a situation two or three times where I've had to put a unit out of service or call a supervisor even when I'm off duty if I hear a friend or partner who is potentially depressed or suicidal. Well, those have made for some very difficult short-term relationships the long-term benefits of gratitude that have been expressed when someone knows that they are cared about unconditionally are absolutely worth the uncomfortable moment. When you spend as much time as we do with our partners, we can learn a lot about them. Keep an eye on them after a potentially hard call. See if their mood is changing or if they are more easily irritable. Don't be afraid to ask them point blank. Hey, are you doing all right? I'm worried. Number two says, look out for your partner. Do you give that advice to others because that's a lesson hard learned for you? Or do you feel like you were good at that? I tend to be a compassionate person. I tend to be an empathetic person. And I've had to learn to professionally learn sympathy versus empathy for my patients so that not everything affects me. But when it comes to interpersonal relations, I tend to be pretty caring. When it came to caring about my partner, I do think that was a lesson learned more when I saw the dysfunction in some people and it cost them their life. I realized that I wasn't as available as I should have been in owning that ever since that moment. That's been something that's just mental health, looking out for your partner, whether it's their physical safety. Gosh, I my partner Tom, he won't mind me saying his name, saved me from a couple people sneaking up behind me who wanted to not let me help the person we were helping. And I'm incredibly thankful for that. But I'm also thankful for the people who pulled me aside when I was in the middle of my burnout spiral. And actually, I think that's part of the reason why I am so passionate about it now is I saw it exemplified for me. Three senior medics who I have the utmost respect for pulled me aside and said, hey, Tim, we haven't seen you smile in six months. What's going on? And that started a process where I actually ended up quitting for a year and just being like, I don't know whether I'm going to come back or not. The supervisor and the three senior medics who were there that night were like, that's cool. Do what you need to. It's, it's not worth your life. A couple months later, my partner who I'd worked with for two and a half years killed himself. I am so thankful for what those three people did for me. This sounds weird, but it's my way to honor Andrew when he died. In his death, 
gave me the gift of learning to be more aware of what's happening with my partners. I think that's the way that I honor him. Nobody understands our job like we do. Make use of your time at the hospitals between calls. I distinctly remember sitting in the trauma room with the attending surgeon who graciously took her time explaining more of the kinematics of blunt trauma to the flank and the concerns the mechanisms raised for her. There was a secondary benefit to all of this. These relationships paid off more than anything I could imagine. It gave me credibility to bring patients to the hospital and be deeply trusted by the staff. The perfect example was the gentleman who called for diffuse abdominal pain with vital signs that would be typical for a calm, healthy man in his late 20s. I don't know what triggered it, but all of a sudden I asked the crew to increase the patient's oxygen and to start two large bore IVs and do serial 12 leads. We were only a few blocks from the hospital, and I had my partner call them and tell them we were coming in with a critical medical patient. I told her to tell the ED that I just had a bad feeling about the patient. We wheeled in less than five minutes later. The attending met us at the door, a little frustrated with the lack of information. But when she saw me, and I said, I just had that bad feeling, Dr. K paused and said, Okay, that's odd, but it's good enough for me. Take him to Trauma Bay 1 and let's work him up. There's no better feeling knowing that you're trusted. Turns out the patient had just had gastric ulcer surgery, and while I thought he might have an MI, he was actually hemorrhaging massively internally and died in the ICU after the trauma surgeon tried to salvage him. Even though my diagnosis was way off, trusting one's gut instinct, coupled with the respect of my hospital colleagues, meant that the patient had the best chances he was going to get. That vote of confidence from Dr. K still sticks with me to this day. In number 17, uh, you say to make use of your time at the hospital. And that was, to me, the most novel thing that you wrote. And it is so important. It kind of reminded me of how important uh, that it is. I don't know that I actually have a follow-up question to that. I just want to emphasize that one. (laughs) (laughs) I want to emphasize it. I I worked in a population that was a lot of geriatrics, and we ran an altered mental status patient at midnight one night, a gentleman in his 70s, and he had been fasting um, to go get blood work the next day. And I thought, oh, cool, like butter, like easy. It's your blood sugar, right? right?" I was like, yay, it's your blood sugar. I know what this one is. Blood sugar comes back fine. I'm like, why in the world would this guy all of a sudden be altered? we get to the ER, and the nurse just hears the story, and he says, oh, I bet he's hyponatremic, low on sodium. Talking to those guys, you can learn so, so much, because hyponatremia, even a medic that can put that in a differential, they don't get to see those blood values very often. That's, a, I think, a classic example of how our colleagues in hospital have access to data that we never get to see and, mm-hmm. and have info that, that we really need if we can just talk to them. Mm-hmm. And most of them are willing to share it. Number one, always prioritize your personal health. The first and most important thing is personal health. This includes the physical, psychological, and spiritual and emotional facets of who we are. There are all sorts of ways to do this, and they're all intertwined. Exercise and physical strength benefits you both in your capability to do the job, lifting, driving, carrying bags, etc., but it also allows you to burn through catecholamines that build up over the course of the shift. We have to remember that all of those neurotransmitters and sympathetic hormones 
affect not only our physical health, but our psychological health as well. The concept of the beauty to death ratio is a great way to look at this. We need to make sure that we build beauty into our lives so that we don't become blinded to the fact that our reality isn't actually real life for most people. Real life, apart from EMS, is full of beauty, happiness, love, and good people. Number one, you say, always prioritize your health. And you talk about the beauty to death ratio. How do you increase the beauty in your life? Well, that's a great question. I have a follow-up one to it. I want to hear the answer to that. And then knowing that I also am curious if EMS calls can be beautiful. Mm, absolutely. That's, that's the easy part of the question to answer. They, the EMS calls can be heartbreaking and they can be beautiful and they can be heartbreakingly beautiful. I mean, they can be all three. I'm going to answer the second question first. There are moments where in, in it, it's not, the typical sense of beauty of like, Hey, I saved a life. That's beautiful. In that moment where you help a family member process the fact that their spouse has just died, it's heartbreaking, but it's beautiful without a doubt. I think that they can be both and that they often are. And it's just a question of whether we choose to remain aware of whether we choose to to have our eyes open to the world around us and to the people around us instead of just seeing it as a job. How do I increase my beauty to death ratio? I heard that the first time from another physician named Jessica Willett. She talked about it and I was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. And then I, I really understood that I had been doing that for a while without having a, a name for it. The first way I did it, I was living with two other firefighter paramedics and so it never felt like we were getting any time away from work. The best thing for me was to move an hour away from the county that I worked in. I moved an hour away and was three blocks away from the ocean. I could open my windows up at night and hear the waves crashing and the seals, you know, barking off in the distance and the seagulls. And then when I'd get home, I'd go grab my cup of coffee at my favorite coffee shop and I'd drive out and sit on a bench. I'd see this huge ocean and it would just put everything in perspective for me. For me personally, like I love spending time with my nephews. Seeing the world through the eyes of a kid is just such a beautiful thing. I think we can all find kids somewhere in our lives. My dog, seriously, it gives me a great beauty to death ratio kind of thing. Going for hikes with him and spending time with another creature that is so unconditionally loving just being like, okay, let's go for a walk. I don't feel like going for a walk today. I don't feel like hiking today, but he gets me out. And once you start moving and once you start burning off those catecholamines, you get that endorphin release and you start to wash these other things out. And then I think the final thing for me is having a sense of, of faith of a higher power that allows me to find a way to express a lot of the soft and mushy kind of emotions, but it has to be intentional. It's not something that happens naturally. I think a lot of people, when things get really shitty at work, work overtime. And that just as it, and you get the rush from it. You get the, all of that kind of thing. But what you don't get is peace and space and time to process. 
So when things get heavy, that's the time to take a vacation. That's the time to separate yourself from work, not pick up extra shifts. That just tips the scale way towards death. We see that all the time. And if you think that that's your re- that our reality is the reality of the world around us, that's when you get, that's when I've gotten, and that's when I've seen other people get way inside their heads and into the darkness. The last question I want to ask you is something that I love to ask people about, and that is, do you have your, a favorite failure? I've got a lot of failures. My favorite one is how I got a nickname that only people who've known me for 20 years remember anymore. I mean, it's not a clinical failure, but it was a classic failure. My second day at work, I went to make a three-point turn in an apartment complex, and my partner had gotten out of the ambulance to back me up, you know, so I wouldn't run into a car in the back. What I forgot was that I wasn't driving my Honda Accord, which I measured at the time was like four foot nine inches tall. And the ambulance is 9.8, nine feet, eight inches tall. Strangely, the carport is also nine feet, eight inches tall. When I made this turn and tried to turn under the carport, I was so nervous because this was the first time I'd backed an ambulance up in public. I completely took off the light bar. It was a an older ambulance, so it had a split light bar with a big silver air horn in the middle. And all of a sudden, it just starts raining red little pieces of plastic down over the windshield. The air horn separates from the ambulance and is dangling by its entrails and just kind of like mocking me as it swishes back and forth over the windshield. And I thought, this is my second day at work and I'm going to get fired. I look in the rearview mirror to see my partner, Walter. He has tears streaming down his eyes. I'm about to cry myself for a totally different reason. Walter made me get in the front of the ambulance and drive to the hospital. We got on the freeway. I had my rear flashing lights on and I could see in the rearview mirror pieces of red plastic flying out the back of the ambulance onto the freeway behind me. And it was the biggest rush for me to get in, drop the patient off, go back to our main station to change out the ambulance. And when we pulled in, Three of the supervisors were standing there. They all had mirrored sunglasses on because it was the mid-90s and those were cool back then, like mirrored aviators. They're all smoking because this was the mid-90s and that was cool back then. And they're just glaring at me, like totally flat affect and staring at me as I drive by. I about peed myself in fear of what they were going to say. And then I look in the rearview mirror and all three of them are doubled over laughing, messing with the new kid. It was also a great way for a new kid to meet everybody because the next day everybody was like, hey, Light Bar, what's up? It's probably the only nickname I've ever had. Light Bar or LB for short, you know, for the people that really love me. Two more things before you go. First, I want to thank my friend and paramedic Abigail Sims, who helped with the creative direction of this episode. And second... I want to remind you that every episode of Medic Mindset has associated show notes and bonus material at medicmindset.com. So you can go there to read the rest of Tim's blog or to connect with him on Twitter. Until next episode, y'all take care.